Hello and welcome to the Access of Space Defense and Security podcast. I'm Omkar Nikam, your host for this episode. In this podcast, we explore the latest developments and trends in the fields of space exploration, defense technology, and national security. Each episode features insightful interviews with experts and industry leaders who share their perspectives on a wide range of topics, including the latest advances in satellite technology, space exploration missions, military defense strategies, cybersecurity, and more. Whether you are a space enthusiast, a military professional, or someone interested in the latest innovation in technology and security, this podcast has something for you. Join us as we delve into the cutting-edge research breakthroughs that are shaping the future of space defense and security. Stay tuned. Hello and welcome to episode 20, Effects of War on Common Citizens. Today's episode is not only special but also informative because we are going to go a little off topic from the world of defense. We are going to actually analyze what are the disadvantages of you know heavily investing in the defense without the knowledge or without taking care of the civilian casualties. So today to have a, a deep insights into the subject and get a better understanding of a complete civilian side of the subject we have today with us victoria silvia sanchez hi victoria glad to have hi. you on the podcast thank you so much uh, pleasure is mine to be able to share with you uh, anything i i could could know about this issue yes thank you very much I, i'm really glad you uh, you could have uh, you know uh, given us this precious time of yours uh, from the busy schedule uh, and yeah so before we take a deep dive into the subject uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself in terms of uh, because you yourself uh, were actually working as uh, in the you know i would say primarily in the defense sector as a journalist uh, but then you you know transition into something uh, completely different uh, path of the career so can you just tell us about your journey and what inspired you uh, to do what you're doing right now yes sure um well as you say i am a journalist and communicator by by training this is why i have studied in the university um but then i was uh, quite so much interested about international politics so i specialized myself um in international relations and peace security and defense uh, particularly focus on the geographical areas of uh, middle east and and africa uh, particularly east africa so um, yes without all my education let's say i have been developing what i was interested working on but uh, actually uh, what was most fundamental to me was um, going to to live and work in Jordan. I have been based in Jordan for five years and there I, I work um, as a journalist, freelance journalist mainly, covering international politics uh, of the region, um, Jordanian politics, but uh, also uh, other conflicts that sadly are taking place in the, in the area. So um, that was really fundamental to, to be there um, living and working as let's say another more citizen in that country because uh, it really helped me shape my 
my knowledge uh, and experience, uh, first-hand experience of, of the region I was, you know, let's say I was studying. And um, I believe that uh, this uh, fact of living there uh, and, and just having a, my life there at the same time I was working professionally, it was uh, key for me to understand a lot of things. Uh, also, once I I left uh, Jordan uh, to return to Spain, which is where I'm from, uh, I let's say I accumulated um, a knowledge uh, and experience about uh, the region, but also the culture of the people, uh, social issues, social differences, etc. That um, has allowed me now to let's say to apply to my to my own society in terms of understanding uh, questions that we are facing right now uh, in European societies, particularly um, the clash that we have between um, those people who, who migrate here seeking for a better life and the um, political dynamics that are developing in, in our society. So, so yeah, I I will say that uh, has kind of been my journey, uh, starting from from that uh, journalistic training and then transitioning through a uh, um um training and a professional experience in in international affairs and uh, in the Middle East in particular, and then returning back with all that uh, baggage uh, uh, with me back to to my to my country amazing i think uh, the experience that you have just mentioned i'm pretty sure it's going to be very much uh, inspiring for the students because there are a lot of students who actually listen to this podcast and i believe as you mentioned your transition from journalist to you know an international affairs expert to you know coming back to the home ground i mean this is something that each and every career branch actually gives you an exposure to something which wide opens your perspective and lets you you know see the window of opportunity which you were actually unaware about uh, previously so i believe yeah each and every you know career path at the end of the day helps you know uh, much more better things and also of course shapes you into a better human being as well so yeah as we uh, you know take a deep dive into this subject uh, as you have expertise in the media and journalism segment so uh, can you also share with us uh, some experiences uh, possibly related to the humanitarian initiatives? Uh, because as you mentioned, like you have transitioned from journalist to international affairs, then you came back. So can you uh, share with us some humanitarian activities or initiatives experience that you had in, in the course of time? Yeah, well, definitely. Um... For instance, I think um, when I was um, living in Jordan, I not only work as a journalist, but I also work um, in the context of local NGOs that were implementing projects in uh, quiet, uh, deprived areas of, of the country. And uh, for me, being able to have the chance to work on that, um, we call refugee camps, but they are not actually a refugee camp as we understood with the tents and this. No, we are, I'm talking about uh, Palestinian refugee camps that have been there for already almost 80 years. So they are actually uh, towns and cities. And for me, it was um, 
very shocking to be able to to access there because these uh, areas are kind of a different um, world, let's say, from from rest of uh, any city in in Jordan. And I really uh, was very lucky to have the chance to to be there to to work implementing projects that we were trying to raise awareness among uh, civil officers uh, regarding how to access better information. But uh, also I had the chance to visit uh, schools where uh, children were learning how to recycle. Uh, and it was <laughs> interesting because uh, these children are learning how to recycle and keep their school clean while if you go outside the school, uh, these these people are facing a problem that uh, there is no public services picking their trash in a way that should be decent for people to live. No, so I mean there is a lot of uh, contrast that you can't find uh, at the same time in the same place. Uh, so I, I believe that uh, <clears throat> being able to to be there, share time with them drink a cup of tea with people while they are explaining to you how how is their life there and what they are doing and show you around all the projects and improvements they are trying to do um, amid, let's say, not very welcoming <laughs> conditions, let's say. It's, uh, it has been one of the most... Uh, experience that have uh, impacted me and uh, let's say mm -hmm. but oh, oh, I believe also like for instance I think uh, at this moment I am well um, since long time also been very impacted by for instance the the problem that we have uh, uh, in the Mediterranean and uh, how many countries and many governments, including mine, we are uh, leaving people to die on, on the sea every single day without uh, um, close, I mean, without not not being affected. Like uh, if we, you know, if we don't see them, it's like it didn't happen, but actually uh, this is happening every day. And I think this is one of the issues that is becoming very much touching for me at this moment and um, because when you get to know and you are in contact and you have friends that have gone through that experience already and have been lucky enough to to make it then it's so hard to to turn uh, your to turn your your side back to to these older people who are seeking for the same chance and not being able to to have it. So I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I think this is some kind yeah. of experiences that have really shocked me and impacted me and moved me to try to do uh, something. I don't know something I could. You know, I mean, maybe sometimes cannot be something so so huge. But at least you know you can you can write an yes. article maybe because I'm a journalist, but I also like a lot to do kind of pedagogy with with the people I know. So I talk to my friends, I talk to my family, I talk to people just to tell them what is happening. So you know, at least kind of creating a little awareness in my in my own circles. 
to start because sometimes it's <laughs> problem is like society live uh, back to to this reality that is happening so i don't know i mean like there is little things still we can try to do for yes. making the world better yeah i think it is very challenging situation as you mentioned so uh, you mentioned in between that uh, the situations have somewhere inspired you possibly or maybe pushed you to take some other route uh, you know you're trying to write you're trying to express it through in the form of writing through your journalism skill set so can you also tell us uh, like we have always seen that uh, common citizens regardless of having you know no key role in any kind of armed or uh, conflict or even the political conflict are the ones paying the price for the political actions of the nation so what are your thoughts on this well definitely since let's say i mean always citizens have paid the price for their rulers uh, decisions but uh, since i don't know during the past 100 years definitely uh, I mean, you cannot wake a war if you are not exposing the civilian population to the violence, because otherwise it doesn't make sense to fight that war. So, I mean, we can see it in Ukraine, we can see it in Syria, we can see it in any conflict. Uh, harming and subjecting the civilian population to suffering and violence and death is the way for the rulers to, to seek and achieve their objectives. Without that uh, that uh, pressure that comes from seeing how your population is being displaced and is being assassinated and is being deprived from everything, uh, if if you don't have this, uh, it will be hard for any conflict, um, let's say, to to arrive to any negotiation or to arrive to any kind of need for a settlement. Because, I mean, <laughs> if they could fight alone in a place that doesn't impact anybody, but it's okay. But of course, yes. it's not possible that this will happen. So definitely, civilian population is the one who who will pay always the price for for the violence and the war. And it's every time more and more and more and more uh, the main objective of those who are waging the war. And is sadly i believe is going to continue to be to be like this and um yes and there is no anymore um there is total disregard uh, nowadays for human rights for international humanitarian law for humanity for empathy and for anything that at the moment was considered the the rules of law uh, sorry the rules of war uh, it doesn't even apply anymore so I mean, if there is no rules anymore in, in war, um, hardly what we can expect it will happen. It's total uh, impact on, on the population and total yes. destruction of all the personal and material and infrastructural capacities of all nations that will take much, many, many more years to, to rebuild than what it's taken to, to destroy them. Yes. I think that point is really right that takes many, many years. Some nations don't even actually recover uh, from this kind of, you know, incidents. Like, for example, the international triggering of wars such as Iraq. 
this they have showcased the effects of war you know this can lead to the birth of more extremist group so considering this factor from your perspective how should society and governments in general should deal with refugees coming from war torn areas also can you tell us how impactful such a strategy can be helpful from a psychological perspective well i believe the first thing that should not be done is to to blame people just you know blame them based on what they suffer and um kind of casting doubts on on who they are uh, just because uh, some in that community do something so i mean like i think uh, the treatment of uh, refugees from wanton areas was, should be much better than in what it is nowadays uh, because uh, today we are not uh, anymore respecting and applying the international laws that we have given ourselves to protect people who have to flee their homes because otherwise they die so and definitely uh, there has to be much more uh, comprehension what they happen uh, also governments in some well i would know everywhere in the world actually should stop using refugees and people fleeing from violence for their political purposes because uh, i mean they everybody is a human being and uh, no suffering should be seen as worse or better for having achieving other political goals that have nothing to do with protecting people in need. Um, so um, I mean, like, I think uh, the first thing is to stop and scapegoating them and pointing to them that they are uh, actually not refugees, but some people coming to us to try to harm us and do us bad and do bad things here. I mean, it's so hard to to imagine that uh, uh, there is mass movement of people seeking for that. No, definitely there is groups that have their own agendas and goals and use the ways they find to 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 try to achieve their objectives. But uh, in any case, it cannot be it cannot be that cannot be a reason for neglecting the the support that people are fleeing from conflict must be given. Um, and psychological perspective, I believe um, definitely these people need uh, psychosocial support and much stronger any kind of of support uh, to be able to overcome what they have gone through because we don't know really the traumas and uh, mental health issues that people are having out of uh, fleeing, having to leave everything behind, losing their beloved ones, losing their children, their parents, anything, uh, surviving torture, etc. I mean, no need to say everything that <laughs> they go through, but they go through very hard things that sometimes uh, because they are a mass of people they simply become a number and we stop seeing them as the individual human being they are each one with their own story with their own needs with their own 
pain with their own grief and it then is really hard to to address the, this uh, this uh, situation and the consequences it has because it requires much more political will and uh, all kind of <laughs> will to be able to to address it than what uh, our current governments and societies are willing to to do so I don't know, it sounds so negative, I, I think, but uh, I think situation right now and treatment is um, far away from what it, it should be. Yes. As you made a really good point uh, previously that the agendas, I believe narratives and agendas kind of rule the world. And I, I think especially in terms of uh, conflict between the nations and the war situations. The narrative and agendas are always on the play or the cards of the governments. Uh, rather, I would say before the defense agency, it's the governments, not because the defense doesn't move ahead without the government orders. And I think the only people or the only group that is suffering in this narrative and agenda making or the creation are the common citizens and i think you have already mentioned to about uh, you know all these factors of what the suffering is what the people lose uh, and it's really sad to see I, I recently saw uh you know the two narratives that were flashing up uh, one was about uh titan uh, submersible that was uh, you know kind of destroyed at the depth of the sea which went to explore or uh, the wreckage of Titanic. And there was a migrant ship, uh, which I believe was coming from Lebanon. I'm not sure though. And it was having more than 100 uh, migrants on that ship. And that ship sank. Uh, but we saw, you know, the narratives uh, from the West, which uh, the news that was covering. I hardly saw, uh, or the people, you know, hardly saw the... Uh, migrant ship sinking which lost more than 100 uh, migrants including small children's so i believe this is what the narrative is uh, you know the way you said the narrative the way people are going to come to know and this incident i, I guess it happened in just a span of five days uh, but still the world was so much uh, unaware about it uh, so you know on the same lines i would like to continue that like currently millions of people are displaced uh, due to like political instability and armed conflict in several parts of the world. So do you think the multilateral institutions are doing enough to settle or provide assistance to these displaced people? No, definitely no. As you, as you say, um, we are having the... Uh, highest amount of people displaced and refugee ever in history. We are having over 100 million people displaced and refugee currently in the world. And this number doesn't stop growing year after year. Uh, so definitely uh, nobody is doing enough or anything to, to say. I mean, we are firstly not respecting the international law that has been approved to deal with this uh, problem. We are not uh, anymore offering asylum 
and giving refugee status to people that are, um, I mean, they are granted it by international law. So, uh, I mean, this is, uh, this is um, really sad. We are not doing this. As I said, we are using uh, refugees, uh, hosting some refugees and another not, uh, and using them as weapons against uh, enemy governments that we have or to seek for any goal that is a political goal of a certain country that has nothing to do with protecting those people. Uh, we also have the defense industries that are fueling the conflicts that are making these people flee their homes uh, with all these uh, technological developments, uh, more lethal weapons uh, every time, uh, contracts for uh, defense uh, cooperation and uh, weapon uh, arms sales that uh, doesn't stop skyrocketing even to regimes whose uh, record of human rights and treating civilian population uh, with the respect is very much in question. But uh, we are just not uh, paying so much attention to it and doing uh, all of these things that are one in contradiction with the other just for the sake of um, money, <laughs> let's say, <laughs> to put it uh, simple. So definitely no uh, countries like the European Union have to do much more than what they are doing actually to to face uh, this problem. I mean, there is issues of uh, historical um, colonization and there is issues of current uh, economic uh, and political exploitation of those countries still. And um, I mean, when you support those who um, doesn't treat their population well, but I mean, you, it's possible that you can expect that these people will come to you to ask for help. So, I mean, and also I believe that uh, there is an interest nowadays in, in trying to mix everything. So, because um, we cannot know anymore uh, if this person is migrating because he's a refugee or not, because he's, his life is threatened or he has suffered violence or whatever. Uh, how we differentiate it from this one is migrating only for economic reasons. So uh, there is an interest of trying to, to you know, call into question like we cannot accept all those million people who want to come to migrate to improve their economic situation. And then it's allowing to not uh, uh, apply the laws that are made to protect those people who are, um, I mean, they qualify as asylum seekers or they can be granted refugee status. But I mean, by the end, what, what is the what is the difference, or why why it matters? The person is coming for this reason, A, B, C, or D, or whatever. I mean, <laughs> why why we want to make category of rights for the people to move, and this category is made from people that we are able to move and go everywhere without nobody telling us if we cannot. So I mean, it's uh, yeah. it's a question, and I mean, it's so much uh, social superiority to you know, to decide that you are not qualified to move because you are not about to die 
I mean, I'm not about to die and I travel wherever I want every time as long as I have money. So <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, just want to see how many there is a lot of contradictions and, and points um, regarding this that uh, by the end it's only impacting this, those people that are really suffering and trying to, to survive in many cases and, and we are not uh, answering to them uh, as they they should be being answered. Yes, I believe the, the multilateral institutes uh, like the United Nations and several others actually there's not only one institution, there are several should actually invest in a much more strategic manner because I, I have always seen uh, you know the United Nations churning out a lot of budget and the thing that happens is like most amount of the uh, I would say goes into you know managing the high profile people who are actually you know spending time not actually on the field but for the Doug's job I would say and uh, there is one sad thing that uh, the primary especially in the United Nations Security Council, the countries managing, you know, uh, possibly uh, the seats uh, on that level are one or the other way are also, you know, possibly trying to fuel the conflict at some some point. And it, it coming from, like, I'm, I'm originally from India and it's, it's a very sad situation and very sad state to see that the United Security uh, United Nations Security Council doesn't include the world's biggest democracy in the UNSC as a permanent member. I mean, uh, you have every other nations, but you don't really have the one of the biggest populated country in the world, uh, which is contributing to several other, you know, like security issues and uh, a lot of things. And I feel, yeah, I think somewhere it is also one-sided. That's the reason we see, you know, kind of no progress from several of the multilateral institutions. But I hope uh, I hope things get better rather than, you know, getting worse because the dynamics possibly might change in the future. And just to, you know, follow up uh, on the recent conflict you mentioned between about the Ukraine. So the Ukraine conflict has showcased a streak of racism with respect to the treatment of refugees from Ukraine versus refugees from other parts of the world. So what are your thoughts on this issue and how it has impacted the European Union region in general? Yeah, I mean, I think it's the idea of what I have been mentioning throughout all the all the interview. Uh, and also following on the story you were sharing about the submarine who sank and the, and the boat with migrants who sank and the different uh, media coverage. Yes, it's, it's racist. It's racist. I mean, it's, the life of all people does not have the same value. And if you are white and blonde, you are more human than if you are brown and dark and coming, I don't know how. I mean, this is like this, uh, it's, it's pure racism and there's no other explanation for it. Uh, <laughs> recently, uh, I have a friend that was telling me that uh, she's professor at the university and one student wanted to do her master's uh, research on the question of why why uh, Ukrainian refugees were better seen than uh, any other refugees. And my professor, um, sorry, my friend told her that uh, 
I think, um, I mean, think about it better because I don't think there is to do a, a master thesis to know the answer for for this question. Yeah. I mean, so, so it's yeah, I, I don't know. Some people maybe want to be blind or not, but uh, I mean, it's clear it's like this. Uh, um, to think, for instance, that we in Spain, we have more in common with Ukrainian people than with Moroccan people is not true at all. <laughs> I mean, it's simply not true. But uh, yeah. we already develop our societies building on these ideas of uh, racism and classification of uh, societies depending on X factors. So definitely um, the treatment that uh, Ukrainian refugees, which I do believe is good that we that we host the refugees and we answer how how we did in that case, but we should do it like this with everybody else because. You cannot say that those people fleeing Boko Haram from Nigeria doesn't are not in need of giving refugee asylum or people living in Afghanistan or anybody. And I mean, like we we didn't go and look for them and bring them to our countries. We let them come and try to arrive in the most infamous conditions possible that people can travel <laughs> in the world. And when they arrive, those were unlucky to do so, we want to send them back or put them in a cage or anything which is not uh, definitely what somebody that has done that long journey of escaping, surviving, resisting, and to try to, you know, be something, if not the answers that we should give them, but the first. Um, racism and this has impacted asylum seekers from from many other countries because uh, all the resources uh, have been put to to help uh, Ukrainian refugees but uh, and then there is no resources for other people or it has been used as an excuse to delay all those uh, dossiers uh, of people who have to seek asylum and still, not an answer for them or denying the asylum or anything. Also impacted in terms of the economic opportunities there was for people that are, let's say, not having the necessary documents to work legally in the country. And then this is a competition, you know, to work on these informal uh, sectors of the economy where people find chances. I mean, there, there is a lot of uh, impact definitely, but uh, it's, it's clear that there is a lot of racism and that we are not willing to lose some white guys, but we are okay to lose 500 people that sunk in a boat uh, with many women and children in front of the eyes of the security, the coast guards of Greece. So, I mean, I think that is summary of the dehumanity that we are living in right now in, in this yes. Uh, world. Yes. Yeah, I hope uh, really it changes because, uh, I mean, we are seeing not only this in the European region, uh, but in other parts of the world as well it might it even it's even in australia it's it's to some extent it's even in india as well mm -hmm. uh, because we have recently seen there are several uh, refugees coming from myanmar bangladesh side and in india also i have observed this kind of similar thing 
of course it it's not you know like a greater extent uh, but here you know in europe i think it's much more visible because almost uh, people from latin america asia africa all are you know possibly migrating to the european region uh, but in india of course it's only the few countries nearby the neighboring countries which people are migrating but yes, it's it's a it's a issue everywhere in the world uh, and i hope like as you said uh, this is the current situation of the humanity and the human world that we live in uh, but let's hope for the best uh, that things might change and individuals like you are there to contribute and improvise you know so i'm really hopeful that situation might change in the future so i think we are almost uh, at the end of the podcast now uh, so victoria what message would you like to give to future generations stepping into the field of peace and conflict research or even the kind of humanitarian work that you're also doing so can you please extend a little bit because this question is primarily for the students who are trying to you know make a career in this specific uh, particular niche yeah uh, i would like to um, to shed light on on a, on a question that i've been seeing recently uh, a lot and that it doesn't made me so happy um no i i noticed that uh i mean every time we have more and more people are researching on peace and conflict and uh, security studies and all of this uh, but um we have like a lot of um websites or uh, social media accounts uh, etc that focus only on following uh, developments that happen in a, in a conflict let's say from a neutral point of view, uh, I mean, like just mentioning today there was a bomb and I don't know what happened. And then uh, we have been able to see the planes of, I don't know which country doing X. And like, you know, I mean, like there's no, there's no context. There's no contextualization of the impact of those facts happening. I mean, you, I find it so, so hard to to address the conflict situation or to try to research on on the reasons and on the consequences of uh, violence and war if you just want to focus on the kind of weapons are being used the kind of uh, military equipment has been used uh, the kind of a strategic uh, military strategy has been used as if you know the war was something happening, standing alone and not related to the context where it happens. So, I mean, like, I would like to highlight this, that uh, peace and conflict studies and security studies cannot be detaching the, the study of the violence from those people who are subjects of that violence. And that uh, we really need to look not only at uh, military developments and who sold uh, how many millions of dollars in weapons to another one that are being used and all of these kind of things, and not paying attention to the consequences this has, the human suffering it creates, how that impacts uh, political, economic, social affairs, cultural affairs, a lot of things uh, that, uh, I mean, 
cannot separate them and, and pretend that uh, I'm not uh, related to the violence. So this is uh, what I would like to say is that that not detaching the humanitarian, the human uh, uh, perspective and the cultural, the social perspective of violence from the study of, uh, of violence, war, security, etc. Because we are risking to not actually understand anything if we don't pay attention to all that dimensions. Yes, definitely. I hope uh, uh, the students take away all these key points with them and try to utilize in their respective career paths. So thank you very much, uh, Victoria, again, for your precious time. And we hope uh, to get you on board again uh, for the future episode, maybe uh, in the coming months or possibly next year, uh, because I would love to discuss a lot of things because from the humanitarian perspective, especially because a uh, few things, you know, we couldn't actually discuss because uh, there is a time limit, of course, of around like 45 minutes. But definitely in the near future, possibly in the next six months, we'll definitely try to have one more episode with you. And yeah, we wish you all the best with your work. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for the chance and give me the opportunity to be able to speak about uh, these uh, questions that are sadly not being addressed uh, as much as they should be. So I really appreciate you giving me this space and hope that uh, this episode uh, will be helpful for, for the students and will be nice to be listened to anybody. So thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you find our podcast insightful, and please like, share and subscribe. See you in the next episode. Thank you.